This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 1. The Beginning to understand the scale and speed of the change that is happening in Europe, it is worth going back just a few years, to before the latest migration price crisis, into a period of what has become normal immigration. It is, worth, it is worth considering a country that was comparatively cut off from the latest turmoil. In 2002, the latest census for England and Wales was published. Compiled the previous year, it showed the extent to which the country had changed in the decade since the last census was taken. Imagine somebody then, in 2002, deciding to extrapolate on the findings in that sentence, census and speculating on what the next 10 years might bring. Imagine that they said, white Britons will become a minority in their own capital city by the end of this decade, and the Muslim population will double in the next 10 years. How would such statements have been greeted? The terms alarmist and scaremongering would almost certainly have been used, as most likely would racist, and although the coinage was then in its infancy, the word Islamophobe. Safe to say, such extrapolations of the data would not have been greeted warmly. Anybody inclined to doubt this might recall just one representative incident when in 2002, a Times journalist made far less startling comments about likely future immigration, which were denounced by the then Home Secretary David Blunkett, using parliamentary privilege as bordering on fascism. Yet, however abused, anybody offering such analysis in 2002 would have been wholly and utterly right. The next census, compiled in 2011 and published at the end of 2012, revealed not just the facts mentioned above, but far more. It proved that the number of people living in England and Wales who had been born overseas had risen by nearly 3 million in the previous decade alone. It showed that only 44.9% of London residents now identified themselves as white British. And it revealed that nearly 3 million people in England and Wales were living in households where not one adult spoke English as their main language. These were very major ethnic changes to a country at any point in time. But there were equally striking findings about the changing religious makeup of Britain. For instance, they revealed that almost every belief was on the rise apart from Christianity. Only Britain's historic national religion was in freefall. Since the previous census, the number of people identifying themselves as Christian had dropped from 72 to 59 percent. The number of Christians in England and Wales dropped by more than 4 million, and the number of Christians overall fell from 37 to 33 million. But while Christianity witnessed this collapse in its followers, a collapse that was only expected to continue precipitately, a mass migration assisted a near doubling in the size of the Muslim population. Between 2001 and 2011, the number of Muslims in England and Wales rose from 1.5 to 2.7 million. While these were the official figures, there was a widespread acceptance that illegal immigrations made all these numbers far higher. At least a million people were recognized to be in the country illegally, and thus unlikely to have filled in census forms, and the two local authorities which had already grown the fastest, 
over 20% in 10 years, were those that already had the highest Muslim populations in the UK. Tower Hamlets and Newham. These were also among the areas of the country with the, with the largest non-response to the census, with around one in five households failing to return the census at all. All of which suggested that the census results, startling as they were, drastically underrepresented the actual numbers. Nevertheless, the findings were striking. Yet, despite being hard to digest in a year, the story of the census passed by within a couple of days, like any other ephemeral news story. But this was not an ephemeral story. It was an account of the country's recent past, its immediate present and a glimpse into its inevitable future. To study the results of that sentence was to stare at one particularly unalterable conclusion, which was that mass immigration was in the process of altering, indeed had already altered, the country completely. By 2011, Britain had already become a radically different place from the place it had been for centuries. But the response to the fact such as that in 23 of London's 33 boroughs, white Britons were now in a minority, was greeted with a response almost as telling as the results themselves. A spokesman for the Office of National Statistics hailed the results as a tremendous demonstration of diversity. The political and media reaction, meanwhile, was striking for being conducted in only one tone of voice. When politicians of all the main parties addressed the census, they greeted the results solely in a spirit of celebration. It had been the same for years. In 2007, the then-mayor of London, Ken Livingston, spoke with pride about the fact that 35% of people who worked in London had been born in a foreign country. The question that lingered was whether there was any op optimal limit to this or not. For years, a sense of excitement and optimism about the changes to the country seemed the only tone appropriate to strike, bolstered by the pretense that this was nothing new. Throughout most of its history, and certainly for the previous millennium, Britain had retained an extraordinarily static population. Even the Norman Conquest in 1066, perhaps, perhaps the most important event in the island's history, led to no more than 5% of the population of England being Norman. What movement there was in the years before and after was almost entirely movement between the island of, of Ireland and the countries that would eventually comprise the United Kingdom. Then, in the post-1945 period, Britain needed to fill particular gaps in the labor market, especially in the transport sector and the newly created National Health Service. And so the period of mass immigration began, though slowly at first. The 1948 British Nationality Act allowed immigration from the former empire, now the Commonwealth, and by the early 1950s, a few thousand people a year were taking advantage of the scheme. By the end of the decade, the number of newcomers had gone into the tens of thousands, and by the 1960s, the numbers had entered six figures. The vast majority of these arrivals came from the West Indies as well as India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, often entering Britain to do factory work and recommending others, often from their own families or clans, to follow and do similar work in their wake. Despite some public concern about all this and what it meant for the country, neither the Labour nor Conservative governments that alternated in office were able to do much to stem the movements. As with countries with the continent on the continent such as France, Holland, and Germany, there was little clarity and less consensus over what the arrival of these workers meant, or even whether they would stay. Only once it became clear that they would stay, and would use the opportunity to bring their extended families to join them, 
did some of the implications become clear? During the years that followed, there were highly specific acts of parliament to address, for instance, criminality among migrants. But there were few attempts to reverse the trend. Even when there was legislation attempting to satisfy growing public concern, this had unexpected consequences. For instance, in the 1962 Com Commonwealth Immigra Immigrants Act, which ostensibly aimed to limit the flow of migrants and persuade some to return home, had the opposite effect, persuading many immigrants to bring their entire families into, into the United Kingdom while they, as they saw it, had the chance. The fact that Commonwealth immigrants no longer had to have a job to come to after 1962 caused another upsurge. It was not until the 1971 Immigration Act that there was any further attempt to stem the resultant flow. So despite the fact that there had never been any plan to allow immigration on such a scale, governments of all stripes found themselves forced to deal with the consequences of the situation in which they and the British people found themselves. It was a situation no one had ever accurately predicted, but which had re repercussions that every subsequent government would have to react to. The repercussions did include some serious bouts of racial trouble. The Notting Hills riots of 1958 are still remembered for being a violent confrontation between West Indian immigrants and white Londoners. But such flashpoints are remembered precisely because they were the exception rather than the rule. While low-level suspicion and concern about outsiders undoubtedly existed, all efforts to capitalize on such unrest were a consistent and wholesale failure, notably those of Oswald Mosley, former leader of the British Union of Fascists and now head of the Union Movement. When Mosley tried to take electoral advantage of the Notting Hill riots and run for parliament in the general election of 1959, his share of the vote did not even make it into double digits. The British people recognized that there were issues arising from large-scale immigration, but they also showed that they knew the answers did not lie with extremists who, had, who they had seen off before. But troubles did arise, not least for some of those who had arrived in the country by invitation, only to find themselves, once there, the target of discrimination. One response to these problems was Parliament's passing of the Race Relations Acts of 1965, 1968, in 1976, which made it illegal to discriminate against anybody on the grounds of color, race, or ethnic or national origins. It is a mark of how little thought through the whole system was that no such bills were ever considered in advance, but only ever as a reaction once problems arose. No Race Relations Act was prepared in 1948, for example, precisely because nobody foresaw the numbers of people who would be coming to the United Kingdom in the future, or the fact that there could be unpleasant implications as a result. Throughout this period, opinion polls showed that the British public were overwhelmingly opposed to the migration policies of their government and believed that immigration into Britain was too high. An April of 1968 poll by Gallup found that 75% of the British public believed that controls on immigration were not strict enough. That figure would soon rise to 83%. At this point, there arose the only moment when immigration briefly had the potential to become a major political issue. In that same month, the then-conservative shadow cabinet minister Enoch Powell gave a speech to the Conservative Association in Birmingham that opened out the debate and just as quickly closed it down. 
Although it didn't quite use the words by which it became known, the, quote, rivers of blood speech, end quote, was filled with prophetic foreboding about the future of Britain if immigration continued at its then current rate. Those whom the gods wish to destroy they first make mad, declared Powell. We must be mad, literally mad, as a nation to be permitting an annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents, who are for the most part the material of the future growth of the immigration-descended population. It is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre, end quote. Oh, this Powell guy. Oh, good. Although Powell's speech was about identity and his com- country's future, it was also about practical concerns, about constituents finding hospital places or school places for their children in a stretched public sector. Powell was immediately relieved of his position in the shadow cabinet by his party's leader, Edward Heath, and any mainstream political support Powell may have garnered, not to mention his own political future, was over. Yet political po- support for his views was high. With opinion polls showing around three-quarters of the general public agreeing with his sentiments, and 69% nice, believing that Heath had been wrong to sack him. Many years later, one of Powell's conservative party opponents, Michael Heseltine, said that if Powell had stood for the leadership of the conservative party in the aftermath of that speech, he actually would have won by a landslide, and that if he had stood to be prime minister, he would have won by a national landslide. But politically, there was no way through for Powell, and his career did not merely falter, but remained in the political wilderness for the remaining decades. Ever since the Rivers of Blood speech, common wisdom in Britain has had it that Powell's intervention not only racked his own career, but wrecked any possibility of a full or frank immigration debate in Britain for at least a decade. So lurid were Powell's terms and so dire his warnings that anybody concerned about immigration forevermore risked being tarred as a Powellite. Certainly, parts of Powell's speech made it too easy for his political opponents to attack him and gave far too much cover for people way to his political right. But among the things most striking when reading in the reactions to it today are the portions for which he was lambasted that now seem almost understated. For instance, Powell's insistence that there was a street in Britain on which only one white woman was living. In subsequent interviews and discussions, the case of this woman was falsely dis- was widely dismissed as a fabrication because it was believed that no such street could exist. However, if anyone had suggested to Powell in 1968 that he could use his Birmingham speech to predict that within the lifespan of most people listening, those who identified as white British would be in a minority in their capital city. He would have demissed such an advisor as a maniac. As was the case in each of the other European countries, even the most famous prophet of immigration doom in fact underestimated and understated this case of the United Kingdom. The truth behind the claim that Powell's intervention made immigration an impossible discussion for a generation was that his intervention and the heat it unleashed allowed politicians to excuse themselves from addressing the implications of their policy. Let me read that again. The truth behind the claim that Powell's intervention made immigration an impossible discussion for a generation, okay, was that his intervention and the heat it unleashed allowed politicians to excuse themselves from addressing the implications of their policy. Oh, man. Many had clearly concluded that the trajectory of the country that the trajectory the country was on was unalterable. 
During the 1960s, there was still parliamentary debate over returning immigrants to their country of origin, if, for instance, they committed a crime in Britain. Later, there was legislation to prevent the habit of marriages of convenience carried out solely in order to gain citizenship. But by the 1970s and 1980s, the size of the immigrant community meant it was plain that any policy aimed at diminishing the size of that community was impossible even if it was deemed desirable. As with countries across the continent, Britain was in a position that it had not intended to be in and would have to improvise its reactions to whatever challenges and benefits this new reality produced. But it was a measure of the unspoken concern about what these challenges comprised that throughout this period even the most straightforward expressions of truth became impossible to voice. By January of 1984, the headmaster of a school in Bradford, Ray Honeyford, published a piece in a small circulation magazine called the Salisbury Review, in which he reflected on some aspects of running a school in an area where 90% of pupils were of immigrant parents. He mentioned the refusal of some Muslim fathers to permit their daughters to participate in dance class, drama, or sport, and the silence of the authorities on this and other cultural practices such as taking children back to Pakistan during term time. He also argued for pupils to be encouraged to speak the language and encourage the culture of the country they were living in, and not to be encouraged to live, as Honeyford argued the race relations leadership were trying to encourage them to do, parallel lives within society. A campaign against Honeyford was swiftly organized by the race relations industry he had used of his article to criticize. The Muslim mayor of Bradford demanded Honeyford be sacked, accusing him even years later of, among other things, cultural chauvinism. Amid protests and nationwide cries of racism, Honeyford was forced out of his job and never again worked in education. He had said in his offending article that thanks to a corruption of politics and even of language, it was difficult to write honesty, honestly about these matters, and his own treatment more than proved the point. Why should a popular headmaster, about whom there were no other complaints, have been forced into retirement for making such an argument? The only explanation is that, at the time, even plain truths about these matters had not yet become palatable. A political and social paradigm, uncomfortably referred to as multiculturalism, had begun, and in 1984 it was not yet possible to shatter the basis of that belief. Although it would have been scant consolation to Ray Honeyford, within a couple of decades of his article's publication, many more people were saying that perhaps he had been onto something, and by the time of his death in 2012, the thrust of his argument had become widely accepted. During the 1980s and 1990s, under the new rubric of multiculturalism, the steady stream of immigration into Britain continued from the Indian subcontinent and elsewhere. But an unspoken consensus existed whereby immigration, while always trimming upward, was quietly limited. What happened when, after the Labour Party's landslide election victory in 1997, was a breaking of that consensus. Although neither a manifesto commitment nor a stated aim, once in power, Tony Blair's government oversaw an opening of the borders on a scale unparalleled even in the post-war decades. They abolished the primary purpose rule, which had attempted to filter out bogus marriage applications. They opened the borders to anyone deemed essential to the British economy, a, def a definition so broad that it included restaurant workers as skilled laborers. And as well as opening the door to the rest of the world, they opened the borders to the new EU member states of Eastern Europe. 
It was the effects of all this and more that created the picture of the country revealed in the 2011 census. Of course, there are various claims as to how this post-1997 immigration surge occurred. One, famously made in 2009 by the former Labour speechwriter Andrew Nether, was that Tony Blair's government willfully eased the immigration rules because they wanted to rub the right's nose in diversity and create what they unwisely took to be an electorate that would subsequently be label or sorry be loyal to the Labour Party. After the outcry caused by his 2009 recollection, Nether qualified this particular memory. Other labor officials from those years began to say they had no idea who Nether was. But it is not hard to see how anyone, however junior, could have come away with such an impression of what was happening in those years. For instance, it was clear from the moment of her appointment as Minister for Asylum and Immigration during Tony Blair's first term that Barbara Roche was seeking a complete rethink of Britain's immigration and asylum policies. While the Prime Minister was concentrating on other matters, Roche changed every, uh, every aspect of British government's policies. From here onwards, all people claiming to be asylum seekers would be allowed to stay in Britain, whether they were genuine or not, because as she informed one official, removal takes too long and it's emotional. Roche also thought the contemporary restraints on immigration were racist and that the whole atmosphere around the immigration debate was toxic. Over her period in office, she repeatedly stated her ambition to transform Britain. As one colleague said, Roche didn't see her job as controlling entry into Britain, but by looking at the wider picture in a holistic way because she wanted us to see the benefit of a multicultural society. Neither the Prime Minister nor the Home Secretary Jack Straw were interested in questioning the new asylum policy, nor the fact that under Roche everyone entering Britain, whether he or she had a job to go to or not, was turned into an economic migrant. Wherever there was any criticism of her policy, either internally or externally, Roche dismissed it as racist. Indeed, Roche, who criticized colleagues for being too white, insisted that even the mention of immigration policy was racist. What she and a few others around her sought was a wholesale change of British society. Roche, a descendant of East End Jews, believed that immigration was only ever a good thing. Ten years after the changes she had brought about, she told an interviewer with satisfaction, I love the diversity of London. I just feel comfortable. The activities of Roche and a few others in the 1997 Labour government backs up the idea that theirs was a deliberate policy of societal transformation, a culture war being waged against the British people using immigrants as some kind of battering ram. Another theory, not running entirely counter to this view, is that the whole thing was a bureaucratic cock-up that had already run out of control under successive governments and only did so spectacularly under new Labour. The disparity between the figures of new arrivals into the country that the Labour government claimed to expect as compared to those who actually came in as evidence, or who actually came in, is evidence for this case. For instance, when it allowed free entry to the United Kingdom for the new EU accession countries in 2004, the British government announced that it expected around 13,000 people a year to take advantage of the scheme. A study commissioned by the government claimed that it would be Total, totally control, totally able to control the flood once restrictions had been lifted. It did no such thing. Rules around work permits, among others, were reformed th so that unskilled and skilled immigrants could enter the country and stay under the guise of being foreign workers. Most would stay. 
entirely predictably, the number soon ran way away from even the estimates of the greatest advocates of mass migration. The numbers of non-EU nationals were expected only to double between 100,000 a year in 1997 and 170,000 in 2004. In fact, over five years, the government's prediction for the number of new arrivals would be off by almost a million people. Ooh. Among other things, the government's experts wholly failed to anticipate that the UK might be an especially attractive destination for people from countries with significantly lower average income levels or without a minimum wage. In the event, because of these policies, the number of Eastern Europeans living in Britain rose from 170,000 in 2004 to 1.24 million in 2013. Such massive underestimations of the scale of migration were of course predictable to anybody with any knowledge of the history of post-war immigration, a history that had been replete with vast underestimates of the numbers expected to come. But it did also partially demonstrate that detailed attention to immigration control was simply not a priority in those early labor years. Most importantly, the impression that all immigration restriction was racist, even restriction of white Eastern Europeans, made any internal and external opposition hard to voice. Whether the policy of a surge in migration was unnoticed or officially approved, it was certainly not opposed within the British government. Whatever the cause or motive, what is rarely remarked upon is that the public response to the massive upsurge in immigration and to the swift transportation of parts of Britain was exceptionally tolerant. There were no significant or sustained outbreaks of racist sentiment or violence over the following decade, and the country's only racist political party, the British Nas National Party, was subsequently destroyed at the polls. Opinion surveys and the simple evidence of living in the country showed that most people continued to feel zero personal animosity toward immigrants or people of different, uh, different ethnic background. But poll after poll did not show that a majority were deeply worried about what all this meant for the country and its future. In spite of this, even the mildest attempts by the political class to raise these issues— such as a 2005 conservative election campaign poster suggesting limits on immigration, were condemned by the rest of the political class, with the result that there was no, still no serious public discussion. Perhaps, successive governments of all stripes had spent decades putting off any real discussion of this issue because they su suspected not only that the public disagreed with them, but that it was a matter on which control had slipped away. The Conservative Party that formed a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats in 2010 had promised to cut immigration from hundreds of thousands a year to tens of thousands, a promise they repeated in office. But they never got anywhere near that target. Neither did the successor Conservative majority government, despite mooring itself to the same promise. Indeed, after five years of a coalition government and the start of a Conservative government, both of which were committed to reducing immigration, not only had immigration not gone down, it had actually risen to another record net immigration high of 330,000 a year. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.